Welcome to the Startup Microdose podcast with me, Ed Stevens, and my ensorcelled co-host, Oliver Jones. This conversation is with Devika Wood. Devika is the founder of Care Platform Vida. Motivated by her 12-year experience looking after her grandmother, who received care from over 150 different carers, Devika is on a mission to harness technology to deliver personalized in-home care to the elderly and disabled. A former Googler, breast cancer research scientist, and health policy advisor, she has been featured in Forbes 30 Under 30 and in the top 10 women changing the world by Glamour magazine. She is also part of the Mayor of London's female founders mission and had just stepped off the plane from San Francisco before we recorded. The need for a carer is something we all experience. This is the touching and inspiring story of one woman's mission to make the care industry more human through technology. So without further ado, we bring you Devika Wood. Okay, hello everybody. We are here today with Devika, got your name right. Well done. From Vida. And so thank you for joining us. It's really good to have you in here. Thanks for having me, guys. Fresh off the plane from uh, San Fran. Yeah, you can do a little, you have to sing it now. (laughs) No, I'm not. not. (laughs) You really screwed me over there. (laughs) San Francisco. Um, (laughs) I wonder if we'll keep that in. now, before we get into talking about Vida, it would be good to contextualise you for... Yeah, you, you may touch that. Yeah, but it might um, make a noise. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I did what I wasn't supposed to do. Um, yeah, to contextualise you for our listeners before we talk about Vida, can you give us a run-through of your your career highlights? Maybe starting from Google at 18. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah? So... Um, Always was meant to be a doctor because obviously I'm half Indian and it's the thing that you do. But more so than that, I actually did want to genuinely be a doctor. Um, and it kind of came from me being care of my grandma because obviously I was always in the hospitals, always in A&E, um, always used to watch that programme ER. Do you mm-hmm. remember that programme ER? Yeah. And mm-hmm. all the doctors were so attractive. And I was like, <laughs> that George that's Clooney's, what I need to go into. George Clooney's foundation. Yes, yeah, okay. yes. As a nine-year-old, I was like, oh, if that's what I get to work with. <laughs> I'm not really doing this well for females out there. <laughs> 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 um, so obviously was really inspired to go into medicine and then um, got in to do medicine um, and then had a massive kind of freak out. And I was like, I don't have the confidence to do this. I don't have the self-esteem to do this. I was like, I can't do this. Um, so I decided to just go on a gap year. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was one of those people that was like, I don't want to go traveling. I want to work and find myself. So I applied for a job online um, and I remember applying through kind of Gumtree at the time mm-hmm. and there was mm-hmm. and, and Google was advertising on Gumtree but in a really cryptic way I think it was cryptic or maybe I just wasn't reading it but I definitely sent out like my you know my CV to loads of different adverts and then I came back with a letter being like um, you're invited to an interview and it had Google at the top of it and I was like, oh, that's really cool. And then I went to the Google offices and still at that point, I hadn't figured out that I was being interviewed at Google. Um, I someone went up to the front desk and she was like, oh, who you had seen? I was like, I don't know, there's some name on here. She was like, it's Google. I was like, no, what are you talking mm. about? And I literally just walked straight back out and I got on to my mum and I was like, I think I'm being interviewed at Google. <laughs> she was like, how the hell have you managed that? Um, long story short, three interviews later, got a job at Google. And what was the job? Because you were there for a year, weren't yeah, you? Yeah, so I was basically doing front of house in the actual Google offices and then working as kind of like PA to the facilities director, um, which was insane. Um, I was managing at the time, get this. So the front of house is where obviously all the people come in, you kind of work with all the 
in people meetings and stuff like that and um there was a system where people would call up the front desk office uh, which was me and complain about getting pictures taken off google off the internet yeah. i'd have people screaming down the phone at me like oh my husband's put on pictures of me cheating uh, you need to get it taken off and they'd literally be screaming and i'd be like what is going on here and there was a manual at the time because that was back in 2008 with all these like pieces of paper of like what you had to say to each of these people that were calling up complaining about their pictures on the internet because true the, the, story there's a huge huh. problem with youtube i didn't realize there was a whole army of people um vetting content onto YouTube as well who have to watch appalling videos to make sure they don't go up online. Apparently a lot of them get through it as well. Yeah. They like they like put really dodgy stuff. Yeah. In the, like a, cl- a clip in between really cute cats. Oh. Like the video be oh, about cats and then like that's wrong. parents show it to their kids and then suddenly something awful flashes Penis. up. Oh. Something <laughs> like that. Yeah. <laughs> was it was a year of policing this um more than you you could bear. Yeah, I mean, like, I, it was an amazing experience working in Google. Whatever job you do there, it's phenomenal, right? You're, like, thrown into this, like, amazing like, kind of organisation of, like, um, cool people, entrepreneurial people, weird people, and there's free food. So as an 18-year-old, <laughs> I was like, this is great. Yeah. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner all around. Um, I got to have breakfast with Philip Schindler. That was amazing. Who's that? He's, like, the VP of Google at the time. Um, he literally just came in, and I was reading Schindler's List. And, yeah, nice. um, and I used to sit at breakfast time just reading it and you get to meet all of the actual people you know like the big top guns and um, he just came over and sat at my table when I was eating having breakfast being like oh that book's really interesting and I was like yeah it is and then long story short I went back out my manager came over and she was like you just had breakfast with Philip Shin and I was like huh <laughs> what um, so yeah that was all a year was all I could take because then I got really inspired to go back into science and actually do what I wanted to do so then you went to university yeah yeah, so I did um, anatomy, human, developmental biology. Right. That's a long word for basically research. And yeah. it, well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you probably found um, the the sort of middle of the Venn diagram between, I guess it's a very tech-orientated company and healthcare or, or science. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It was. It, I think it was kind of the point where I really wanted to go into research because I was literally walking around all of the offices and all of the different spaces, and everyone was just so creative. It was like kind of an artist, but business sense in Google. It's phenomenal. And so then I was like, I really want to get into something where I can actually put my teeth into it and do something physically with my hands. And so research was like the obvious thing with science, right? So then I basically went to do cancer bio, PhD at Imperial. Did you? I did. Oh, our last guest was from, uh, or two guests ago, was from a PhD from Imperial as well. And um, you were an undergrad. And I was an undergrad in biology, which... Ooh! Yeah. Oh, you were? Yeah. Don't sound oh. so surprised. And I was like, ooh! I was moron, managed to get a degree. <laughs> no, but I think um, I came out of Imperial and thought that healthcare and, and all the data science that was going to be done was going to have a big impact over the next 10 years. And I think it, it is now. Mm. It's becoming very clear that it's it's going to become a huge part of where I think the, the economy goes in the future. So did you, during your studies, you obviously ended them um, and you didn't go into research. What what happened then? Well, so I did um, cancer biology. I was looking at breast cancer research at Imperial, right? And then I was in front of these cells and I was so bored out of my brain. So I realised that maybe research isn't for me. <laughs> I've been on this journey of like continuously <laughs> ever finding myself still doing it um and then my professor at the time um introduced me to somebody that knew Ali Pasa and that's how I got involved with Babylon the best experience ever um yeah so then I kind of left um doing research then going to startups and that was my first ever experience of a startup which was I think probably the most amazing incredible 
thing for me to have experienced when I was, you know, 23. Tell us about Babylon. Just quickly give us a... So Babylon is a, it's the kind of putting the power of access to GPs into the hands of everyone in an affordable way. So it's the it's like the most successful digital health app to ever have come out. Like of GPs on demand. UK. GPs on demand, yeah. So basically an app that you can contact and get in touch with a GP. Within 15 minutes, you'll have a FaceTime conversation. They'll diagnose you. They'll prescribe you. They'll send the prescription to your local pharmacy of your choice. You go pick up the prescription. And then Bob's your uncle. You are treated. Oh. Same day. Huh. Same moment. Yeah, cool, right? Because they, they've got the adverts on the tube at the moment. That's how sort of ubiquitous it's becoming. And there's got to be a lot more efficient than what normally happens. So, I, I, oh it, yeah, waiting for two weeks to get a GP's point. By that time, you're either dead, or just or, there's nothing wrong with you. Yeah. And they can only yeah, see for, for ten minutes. Literally, about, seven about minutes, seven, seven. Yeah, and only about one ailment. Yeah, and I have many. So oh, it do you? So it doesn't work for me. Yeah. <laughs> just lying about my symptoms. <laughs> it doesn't work for me. Um, because I also feel terribly sorry for GPs because we get approached um, by entrepreneurs pitching and you have to try and catch up to the curve really, really quickly. It's like, I, I'm not sure what your business does. I'm trying to understand what you do. And it's really unfair that they have to sit there and within two minutes try and work out whether you're a hypochondriac or not or what symptoms you're displaying. That's actually displaying. an amazing way to consider it. So it is literally like you going into a GP, isn't it? And, and sitting there chatting shit about yourself for them mm. to then diagnose at the end of it. Yeah. Same with an entrepreneur. Pitching yeah. to investors. No wonder they want it in three minutes. And I wonder if people are more truthful with a kind of chat or mobile interface about the kind of severity of their symptoms. Because to justify a GP's time when you're sat in front of him, I think you... you you want to get it addressed and possibly referred on if there's something wrong so with you. So you exaggerate what's wrong? Well, you might sort of just go, it's really painful on a scale of one to 10. It's like, oh, it's eight, rather than just going, oh, probably a yeah. five. And that's why you have so many unnecessary referrals going to the NHS. Right. And that, my friends, is how I went into Medifer, which was the next startup. Oh, yeah, link. Yeah, link. So yeah, well. Link. <laughs> well done. Well, how did you, um, so in the inspirational environment that, that you were in with Ali, what made you jump out of that? So I think for me, it was kind of, I was in that process of, I've, le I've left research, which I've always wanted to do. So I was, you know, even when I was doing the cancer bio, at some point I was always like, I want to go back into medicine. It was just about me getting confident in myself. I'm the most self-deprecating, low self-esteem person you'll ever find. I don't know why and where it's come from, but it takes me about a year to think I can do something. Hence being in a startup is like so high growth. I'm like, every day I'm like, I can do it, I can do it. Like, like self-convincing myself all the time. And But that's good. I guess it's a really good way for me to actually be quicker at learning that I can do stuff. Um, so then when I was in there, I was still really thinking, okay, actually I do want to go into medicine, but actually I was so inspired by him and his story and the way that he is so um, on the ball and like ruthless with what he wanted to achieve. Like it's unbelievable, his tenacity and his drive and the way that he managed to get backing into this company mm. was um, when I was listening to the podcast, I think it was, he was saying that he got backing from um, high growth kind of fees, like funds that you wouldn't even get until, you know, you're fully fledged in 10 years into your business, but he managed to get that right at the beginning. So he bystepped any seed or VC money because he wanted to just go for the whole you know, full nine yards and just achieve the unachievable in the space of two years. And how did he do that with the sort of charisma of his pitch? I think it was the charisma of his pitch, what he's, what it is, what Babylon actually offers is right. phenomenal, right? Yeah. So it's, it's a lot. It. So you have something that's an amazing offering that's going to be, every single person needs it. And then on the other side, you've got somebody that's probably just super inspirational to talk to as an entrepreneur. And then he's, he had been in the healthcare space before, so he launched Circle, which was the biggest kind of, I think private provider of hospitals. 
um, which was super successful. So he had backing already. Yeah. So it is lucky. Not every entrepreneur has that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's luck versus and charm and experience, I guess. All the good things. All the good things <laughs> that you need to be things. a successful entrepreneur. Yeah. And that's what he's doing now. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think for me, it was a great environment to see how a startup works. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was there, there was literally, I mean, I think there were six of us. Um, and when it first launched, I mean, it literally launched in the way that um, we got the first kind of pres- prescription through. And I remember it went down to a pharmacy in Oxford Street. And we were based in Oxford Street at the time. And we got this like call from the pharmacy being like, who the hell is Babylon? And I was like, uh, hmm. a startup? <laughs> we're in and he was like, we can't put this prescription through because we can't accept digital um, signatures mm. from doctors. And obviously it was all digital. So then we end up having to go through it. And now, you know, if you go to a prescription pharmacy, they just know who Babylon is. But it's these sort of like tiny little ways to change the way that actually behavior in digital health and startups and changing the way that people think about things. But it can take a long time and... Babylon's proven to kind of change the way healthcare is delivered. Yeah. It's insane. For for obviously the better. Way the better. Um, and in terms of some things he did that have inspired you forward, what were the kind of critical things? He just, does he just execute well? Does he Is he a good visionary? Did that kind of get you to believe into, in what was doing? Or was it just the cause of the startup? That I think it was all three of those. So right. it was the cause of it, which I think it's a no-brainer, right? Being able to have a GP through your phone mm-hmm. rather than waiting two weeks, a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. Using technology, which is your app, which everyone has in their hand, to connect to that GP, again, a no-brainer. And then also utilizing the resources of these GPs. So they were basically on the books. Um, they would you'd pay by we paid them by the hour to be on the books. And you're just utilizing your workforce in a better, more efficient way. Rather than, you know, them having to sit in an office, a physical office, and people coming into waiting rooms and times lagging over because obviously an old person's gonna sit in there and probably speak for about half an hour. This is making the process entirely efficient. And then his visionary way of dealing with things, the way that he um spoke to everyone it just he just instilled that like i don't know that passion for to drive and change things and and whenever you're around him it's just like whoa like it's like leadership that is like the utmost leader right and there's just no shits given no no prisoners taken and when i met him the other day i was at um i think it was in 10 downing street dropping that one in there classic yeah Um, uh, he was was there because he's doing a lot with obviously the government now as our leader, um, mm. <laughs> we're not. We are. Um, he, um, I said to him, like, what's the biggest advice you can give me to be a founder? And he was to be taken seriously as like a CEO founder. And he was like, you just need to fire someone. Wow. Yeah. Still haven't done that. And still a bit of fear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And do you know what? It's true. You have to go in there, not fire someone just for the sake of it, because you know, <laughs> that's pretty cool. I fired my yeah. CTO, and now I'm dead. <laughs> and then a the day later, please come back. <laughs> um, no, but fire. You have to do the fire, like because there's always going to be hires in there that are not efficient, right? Hires, and you just got to get rid of them and nip it in the bud. But sometimes you're just like, oh, mm. maybe I could put them into another role, or maybe they'll grow with time. And in startups, you don't have time. Yeah. Time is money. Mm. Yeah, time mm-hmm. is of the essence when there's also no clear organizational structure so you can say you put them into a different role well other than the ceo cto and coo maybe a cfo later down the line the roles are quite unclear you go like sales business development marketing pr whatever it might be it's quite difficult to work it out yeah um what what then was your next career step and and 
what was the role in there and then how has that led? So the next one was um, Strategic Partnership Officer at Medifer. Um, so Medifer was what I was talking about earlier. So basically bringing consultants to the GPs virtually on a platform. So the idea with GPs is that they're the jack of all trades, master of none. Mm-hmm. God, that sounds not in a bad way, I mean, not in the bad way, but it's literally, they have to see so many disease states and obviously you're not going to know everything about every disease state. So their automatic reaction is to prevent somebody from you know, not being looked after and getting worse, they'll refer them into the hospitals, um, which often ends up with loads of unnecessary referrals of people going in, people over-exaggerating their symptoms and being forced, like forcing themselves into the hospitals for no reason. Um, so what this did was, a, it was a platform that integrated into the NHS servers in the GP practices, and they're called EMIS and Vision. And basically seamless, in, seamless up, uploading of this platform the gps then go onto this platform when they get the symptoms they'll say um roger's come in and roger's got like um symptoms of um uh pain in his like abdomen and he's got blood in his stools and they'll put those um symptoms in they'll send it to a consultant virtually and the consultant will come back and say one of three things either refer straight away on a two-week um fast track because it might be cancerous um give them medication in the community or wait for another three weeks and do tests and then come back so it's a way of refining who goes into the hospitals. And, and again, a no-brainer. And it's a much better version of Googling the symptoms. Right, which yourself. Which is why no, you probably the, think that you've got seven different diseases. No, all the GP doing it. I've, li- I've sat there and the, the GP Google. But it's, I think it's normally being slightly unfair. Well, this was, this was back in, um, in Oxford. Um, and I think, I'm excited, I think she was Googling it to show me what, what I feared I had. <laughs> Um, actually would have uh, how it would have manifested itself I don't think they have an image search for hypochondria do they here's <laughs> 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 what it looks like anyway moving on from that um, so yeah Medifer and then how did you trans- you went to Hanborough Books afterwards I went to Australia afterwards oh, wow. to do healthcare Australia. to work in healthcare Australia yeah so then, I, so then I finished uh, and I was like I want to do something with global experience and I was like I love healthcare so I just wanted to go and see what the healthcare system's like around the world um Judging from the, my friends in Imperial who are doctors, um, in Australia a lot easier and more lucrative. Oh, way better. Yeah, 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 yeah. they're having yeah. a great time. But, yeah. but but is it a good healthcare system? I think it is. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a bit, it's a, like a mini hybrid. So it's like, the, not, to, to be honest, nothing is better than the NHS. I know I'm an like avid supporter of the NHS, right? I know we faff on about how crap it is all mm-hmm. the time. But it is amazing. If you want health, if you want access to healthcare at any point, you will get it. Maybe a little lag time on the way, but that's because we've got an increasing population, we've got an influx of immigrants, like, and that's great. And actually, to be honest, I don't mind paying my taxes to get other people access to that healthcare. But I'm that's just me. People mm-hmm. might be different. Australia, that's a mixture of private and public. Um, so it's a good mix, but at the same time, nothing it doesn't have the same easy access as it does in the UK with the NHS. So you have to part pay. A lot of the time right yeah unless you pay have your health insurance in which case then you have access to as much as you want well they've got such a small population as well it makes it just there's just less stress on it yeah to be and honest if any country should have it they should have the nhs a system of the nhs because it's small and they mm-hmm. prefer they don't like immigrants coming in right so they're very anti mm. or they restrict how many people can come in so of course they're restricting their population which they have a massive aging population no carers to look after them fyi yeah, because they don't allow anyone to come in. Yeah, so is that a, maybe in the future somewhere for Vida to expand into? Oh, massively! Yeah, yeah. we went. I went over there three weeks ago um, to look at yeah white labour technology. Um, uh, Melbourne's really big into the healthcare sector. We've got a lot of te- uh, technology startups in the healthcare 
industry seem to go and set up an Australian office in Melbourne. Maybe because there's similarities to the UK healthcare system in a way that there's yeah. you know more so than to the US. So we yeah. often see people kind of try and break that market first. Yeah, it's easier to break into a private market, right, if you have a digital solution. So um, Brisbane is where I went. They are phenomenal. So they've got the first digitally powered hospital ever. Um, well, how does that work? Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I will tell you how that works. Yes, um, yes so, <laughs> so basically they've got this um, system and this it's like it's like a power room. So it's, you go into this like kind of underground area within the hospital. Where they <laughs> and Google screen. your own symptoms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do I have? Um, and they have these screens all set up and basically all of the ambulances, it's quite a simple idea, but all the ambulances have these connect like GPS tr- trackers and they can understand and logistically track where the ambulances are and what is the stage of severity of them going out to that person in who needs help. And then they can track and stage which um, ambulances have can have room to go into hospitals. So they can basically stage if there's no space in a hospital, then how can they get the ambulance to the closest other one? So they're grading it by risks and then they can release patients and triage them more effectively in the hospitals because they have tracking of what's happening on the outside. Because often what happens here is that you get the whole A&E department gets fully booked up and then there's there's no way to track all the ambulances out in the community. So they kind of send them to off anywhere possible. But then the hospitals aren't speaking to each other unless it's through a phone. So they'll be calling up the A&E department, do you have space for this person to come in? And then they'll be like, yeah, I think so. But in that time, another person could be coming in that's an emergency. So um, in Brisbane, they've basically powered all of the hospitals to connect with each other and talk with each other ah. without a human talking. Tech. Wow. Very cool. It's awesome. Very, very yeah. cool. Well, it says, yeah, way better logistics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Brisbane's really forward thinking. They actually, um, in the university there, they found the HPV vaccine. Human really? pap- Yeah, human papilloma virus, yeah. They've got some good, maybe that's a testament to Australian males. Yeah. How quickly they solved that issue. Well done to them. But you see, they don't talk about it enough because I thought it would have come out of, you know, Stanford or Cambridge, but no. Yeah, they should should shout. Sunny Gold Coast. Shout a bit louder. Yeah. Australia's healthcare system is um, pretty good for some things uh, because my dad has Parkinson's and they've got. They're really good. Uh, he's Australian as well. And they've, oh, really? they've got some really good Parkinson's research going on. And just like there's certain um, illnesses that they obviously they drive are making forward, a name yeah. for themselves yeah. in, yeah, yeah. which is quite quite impressive. And so you you out there, you didn't stay for too long because some people never come back. No, no, no. So I, I didn't like it. Really? Yeah. So I was in Sydney um, and um, I went over there actually because I wanted to spend time with my sister who lives there. Uh-huh. Um, and so I got this job doing kind of health consultancy work, working with Healthcare Australia. And I was working with pharmaceutical companies. Mm. I hate pharmaceutical companies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, not a fan. Um, and it was two things. One, I was working in a company. I was the only kind of on, on senior management level. I was the only female out of 30 men. Right. Two, I was the only brown person out of like the entire board as well and did you feel resistance hated it yeah so it was so much resistance it was so hard and they would make really misogynist comments um sexist comments racist comments really somebody shouted across like one of the actual managers at one point called somebody a curry muncher which is a racist really racist term right but laughed about it and i was sat up there like what how did you even get away with that Um, What, what sort of age were they the 30s 40s 
Jeez. 50s. Did you feel like you had any um, recourse to take against them or was it just completely shut? No, it's it's just they, they, they I don't think they realise that they're doing it. Whereas, you know, if you said that in, in I mean, you'd get completely mm. castrated mm. if mm. you even mentioned that. Mm. And if you had one person out of 30 people who was a brown female, I mean, again, so wrong. Um, but it's like they don't, maybe they are doing more and more about it now because this was, you know, three years ago. Mm. Not that, it's not that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I want to think positively. And but also, I hated it. the problem with that is that's not Queensland. Not, not slugging off Queensland. My uncle lives there and farms macadamias. Um, <laughs> big up Queensland. Big up Queensland. <laughs> but Sydney's meant to be the sort of forward-thinking hub. Hub. Yeah, it's yeah. very international and it's okay. growing at the rate of knots. That's pretty disappointing. Yeah. That's so backward. That, that's a shame that the system failed you. I mean, I guess it's to the UK's benefit that you're now starting a company here and not yep. out in the sunshine. Um, yeah, so how, how did you come to Vida? Yeah, so Vida has been a lifelong kind of journey, I guess. I mean... Yeah, I'm, you said with your grand. Yeah, so being care for her for 12 years was, um, I think, has left a massive impression on me. I never thought I would do anything like Vida, to be honest. Like, it wasn't like I was over every year, like, oh, you should do this, I know, I know what I want to do. But I think um, through those twelve years, it was just. Uh, so how come you were you were were you her print main carer for yeah, twelve years? Yeah, yeah, wow. yeah. So like she moved, she actually looked after me because my parents had like full time jobs. So um, real like you know they would leave at seven in the morning, get back at ten. So she was the person that would like take me to school, pick me up from school, hang with me. So she was like the person that I you know grew up with. And then at the age of ten, she got really sick and she got uh, had her first stroke. Um, so she ended up moving in with us immediately because mm-hmm. in Asian families, that's what you do, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone moves in, the mm-hmm. dog, the cousins, mm-hmm. the parrots, everyone, mm-hmm. um, which I really respect. And I think, yeah. you know, but I think, you know, Western and, and Asian culture can learn a lot from each other about yep. how this works. Um, but so she moved in with us and then we went to social services to ask for funding to give her carers. And because she wasn't so bad, Essentially, I'm putting like, you know, my finger, like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, air quotes, air quotes. Um, <laughs> she didn't meet the, the the amount to get enough money. So they gave us 15 minute visits in the morning and 15 in the afternoon. And um, the carers that turned up, I mean, you can imagine in 15 minutes, you can't do anything. I mean, I can't even, you know, talk about Vida in 15 minutes, let alone have a carer come in, take a disabled person up the stairs, shower them, clean them, give them breakfast. So essentially they were coming in, they wouldn't do anything. My grandma would be like screaming at them because she got dementia, which means that she didn't Mm. recognize people. You know, they weren't speaking her language. Um, So ended up me me and my mum and my dad just basically chipping in, but obviously they were going off to work. Then it was me. And to be honest, she only really interacted with me properly because I was the one that she really kind of only started to recognize correctly, me and my mum. So I think there was times, I mean, there was some horrible things I've seen. Like, you know, she would walk into my room and just stand there and just think it was the bathroom. Oh God. And I was 12, you know, and I'm just sat there like, Nan, what are you doing? Like, no one was teaching us what is dementia, what is the symptoms. It's quite scary, actually, it. when you see it um, yeah. happen in person. I saw um, a carer in the NHS hospital and this woman was just pinching him and yelling at him like get away from me get away from me and he was unbelievably patient yeah but it's it's quite terrifying how quickly they just forget and and then become aggressive aggressive yeah because that is a huge symptom of it and like learning how to deal with that no one tells you how to deal with it no one teaches you no one gives you education or the skills to do that it's just learning by doing and obviously it's someone you love so it's even harder closer 
I think. Hello. Yeah, it's better. Oh, that's It'd be pe- people screaming at us because they can't hear you. I want to hear a story. It's so good. <laughs> it is good. I was entranced. Oh, no. Keep going. Okay. Um, and then, yeah, so and then over those years, basically, we had 150 different carers turn up. Um, they would often come in. I mean, I've heard them screaming at her. I've seen them being abusive to her. Like, I've seen all sorts of stuff. And obviously, when I wasn't there, I didn't know what was going on. But I would like to, t- I always try to turn up when they were there to see. And I saw some horrible things. And then on top of that, you know, the the GPs weren't monitoring any of her care in the community. They were just overdosing her and prescribing her antipsychotic medication to sedate her behavior, which was aggressive behavior, which they do to all dementia patients. And so we were essentially just drugging her up to the eyeballs to stop her from being aggressive, which was then making her become like a vet, like a, I can't say this word, but it's like vegetable. a vegetable state. Vegetable. Yeah, she yeah. literally, she became completely disabled. She got epilepsy, schizophrenia. She started self-harming herself at 90. Um, and then we ended up putting her into a mental institute at one point for a week because they said that that was the right thing to do. No, it wasn't. Um, and we ended up moving house. You know, my dad walked out for a year because of the stress of it. So fundamentally, I mean, having a good carer can make or break you and having the right support can make or break you both for the client and also the next of kin and the family members and actually it's one in four people that this happens to and families apparently in the UK that have need to have carers or are let down by the care industry so I think the journey from that when I did get a chance to start Vida I really knew it inside out Mm. as a person that had experienced it the one thing I didn't understand and I had never experienced was being a care company you know, I didn't understand the actual ins and outs of like, why is the care system so bad? Why are there no carers? Why do the carers not care? So then when I did launch Vida, I started to learn that and then... What is your take on that? So I think we've treated carers over a very long period of time as if they are a commodity that's just come comes and goes. There has no career progression for them. They basically, there's 16,000 care companies in the UK. The carers go between them, just getting more, like whichever one pays them more money. Is that on a sort of freelance? Most of them are self-employed right. or zero hour contracts. Um, there's no real incentive for them to stay as a carer because there's nowhere for them to go with being a carer. Mm-hmm. Um, they do one care certificate, um, which then basically the, you, you do it in each agency and then the agency controls that certificate. So then if they want to go to another one, they have to pay money to get that certificate. So then it's a way to the agencies to keep them. Mm. Um, so then the carers feel like they're, you know, basically being treated crap and then they do bad jobs, right. which is understandable. And essentially we've decided that the lowest qualified, lowest paid people are looking after the most vulnerable people isolated in their own homes. As a nation, we've agreed that. And I think that's the most horrendous thing that we could have ever done. So we don't have enough carers. Um, we've got a huge aging population. Yep. People are now saying we should use robots. I mean, no, my my grandma would have gone mental if a robot was trying to touch her. Like, you know, they need that human <laughs> yeah. interaction. Um, so we need to fundamentally change. And that's what we've tried to focus on. Because I think technology can do a lot but it can never replace that human interaction and the need for carers. But it's about making the human interactions more efficient. Yeah, um, just like what Babylon did. So empowering people with the right tools to make that so that when you do get a chance to have a, you know appointment or you do get a chance to see a, a carer, that time that you get spent is efficient. You know, you're maximizing the amount of time that you're with them because the technology can do everything else. Yeah. So how does Vida work? Yeah. 
Yeah, so Vida basically is is two steps. So you have the um, the carers that we recruit onto our platform. So we are a care company fundamentally. Um, we recruit, train, and upskill them um, in house, and then we utilize technology. So they have an app where we can um, do e learning, um, upskilling, supervising when they're out in the community. All the care records are digitized, so they give us all the information through the app, which comes through to our platform in real time. So if they say to us. Um, in John seems to be dizzy or his urine is smelling that's normally an, an indication of a UTI so we mm-hmm. can intervene quicker to prevent them from going into hospital which is amazing um, and then on the side of the technology it's basically a health tech platform coordinating at home care um, with real time monitoring basically keeping people out of hospital and actually getting people out of hospital as well so Bed blocking is a huge issue because we don't have enough carers in the community. Mm-hmm. Um, the platform can basically integrate with hospitals and GP practices to actually then book a carer through the platform um, if they were engaged with us. Um, and then it's using a matching algorithm. So whatever information gets put in, so they need you know, a dementia specialist, somebody that speaks Spanish and has you know, plays a violin, whatever it may be, <laughs> that matching algorithm works. And then it spits out the top five carers within a 30 minute radius that could do that um, job in that right time. As you say, it's not a general umbrella of, of care, quote unquote. No. It's, it's actually, yeah. it'd probably be nice for um, somebody to feel like they really are a dementia expert, for instance. Because yeah. I think um, my, my concern as an, an onlooker to care is it doesn't have an end point. You can't complete it. There's always somebody new to care for. And the, re- mm. the end result is normally you're, you're caring for them until they continue to decline, but as mm. best as you can. Um, you know, I think doctors sometimes get the satisfaction of curing people or saving somebody or a surgeon might fix somebody. But I can see why carers probably feel a little bit isolated and struggle. Mm. Um, do you allow the carers to share information between each other on particular sort of patient outcomes or ways of... Yeah, because there's often more than one carer dealing with one patient. Right. So we try to not put one carer to one client because then they get, um, what's the term, um, over... Uh, what's the word attachment yeah they get attachment and then obviously that person goes off sick they're like I don't want anyone else I just want that person because they're the person they've got used to because it's a very very strong connection these guys make right the bonds Mm -hmm, are phenomenal they're doing really a lot of personal personal care itself is very intimate and then you know they're often being their biggest support to try and get them to do daily living activities so we try to put at least three so that they don't get that over attachment and so if one person gets sick then somebody else comes in but it's still enough so that they do build the relationship yeah exactly so you can't do you can't do 150 like I had yeah (laughs) I hated all of them Um, and yeah so basically they then share that they have the same information on the app about that client and then whatever information they put in you can they can see it so each of them can see the information but only when they get to that client's house so it's not sharing information once they've left because that's patient identity GP GDPR Mm -hmm. we are compliant obviously (laughs) FYI (laughs) (laughs) Um, so yeah so we have to obviously comply with that but they do share and it's all about empowering each other peer-to-peer learning educational tools um, and actually sharing, you know, if one carer says, when I play this music, you know, Betty seems to be a lot calmer, then the other carer can know that they That's need great. to. So it's, it's really good. Cool. Yeah, I was thinking if I was like, Devika and Ollie went and saw a patient and, and you both did a great job, there's like a peer uh, sense of achievement. Of achievement. Yeah, yeah, I'd want to make sure I did a good stint. Yeah. Um, not just so I could improve my ratings, but actually because 
I felt like I was part of a team. Yeah, and a lot of them work, you know, in in dual. So they go in to do double-handed visits. So that means when somebody is fully immobile, they need to literally transfer someone using a hoist and clean them when they're in the bed. Um, and so you need two people to do that. So often they're working as a team anyway. So they, the carers themselves build strong connections with each other. Um, but it's nice to make them feel like they're supported as much as possible because remember when you're a carer you you're not based from an office mm-hmm. you're based out in the community you barely come into the office unless you're coming for training or to pick up you know your gloves or aprons or whatever so keeping connected with them is so crucial um and that's how technology is such a no-brainer for this industry because yeah, i think we've eroded the sense of community care um you touched on a point about people living with their grandparents yeah, yeah. that's a good point and i read um in japan that the number of grandparents used to live with their or or elderly who used to live with their children was 80% in the 1960s and it's now dropped down to about 40% and it's just because we're abandoning that kind of close-knit community-based relationship we're all moving to big cities where we can get jobs Um, and I think that was an an interim step that people got before ending up in care homes and I think when people end up in care homes early it seems like a last destination and I feel a lot of people lose a lot of hope so on that point we saw about six or seven years ago a lot of people starting up care homes I think with the idea that it was quite lucrative, which yeah. seemingly it isn't now, and nope. a lot of them are failing. Mm. Um, what does that landscape look like, and how do you interact with the care homes? So the care homes, I mean, a lot of them have started to go into insolvency. I think I was reading an article the other day, I can't remember, I think it was an NHS article, but they were saying that 80% will be insolvent in like 2050 or something ridiculous like that. Because like, fundamentally, they also don't have the capacity of carers because everyone treats carers as badly as each other. Mm. Um, they've got massively high overheads of sustaining these care homes themselves. It's all a real estate play. And actually the quality when you go in there is so far and few between. I mean, you get some which are outstanding. There's one like in Chelsea Cloisters, which you pay three grand a week for. Oof. If you have the money, it's mm, like anything. Yeah. If you have the money, you can get yeah. whatever you want, right? Yeah. Not everyone has that to spend, especially pensioners. Um, so if you, for, for the, you know, if you want to get like a, a relatively okay care home, um, you're still going to be paying around thirteen to fourteen hundred pounds a week. Wow, yeah, that's a lot of money. A lot. Um, so care homes are in the massive decline, and like you said, normally people go there to end their lives. Well, and to make them affordable, presumably you need to move out of the cities mm. where the real estate is cheaper. So you end up having people sort of have their their parent out in Surrey or something, or not Surrey, sorry, a bit expensive, but Sussex or something. And yeah. then you don't visit them as much because they're yeah. 40 minutes outside of London. And then also you have a lack of care supply out there, right? Because carers are generally going to be living in cities because they're all younger family orientated people from city areas. Do you work to provision um, carers on demand for care homes at the moment? No. No. When we first launched, we had a lot of care homes actually contacting us saying, could you do this with us? But they were, char- they were asking, they were going to pay us or our carers like way less than London living wage. They would mean somebody was saying to me, oh, we'll pay them £6.50. I was like, absolutely mm. not. Mm. And they'll pay us £7.50. I was like, that's not even like humanly possible, let alone what quality of care are you going to get from some paying someone £6.50 an hour? You get more working in a bar yeah. or Sainsbury's or McDonald's. Yeah, and it's a much tougher job, I imagine. It's horrendous. So what is your, on the business side, what is your business model? So the business model works and so we obviously deliver care. So we get paid per hour by private clients and social services. So we work with like local authorities. Um, and as, in, as in councils? Yeah, with right. councils. So we do social care. So my main thing going into this was I want to work with social services and, and do adult social care because that's the big 
massive market that yeah. needs targeting. And that's the one that let me and my family down and lets all the families down around the UK. And it's a fifth, they spend 50 billion pounds on wow. adult social care. I think by in 2024 or something, that's how much it will be spent in a year. Um, the whole industry as a whole is a 125 billion pound industry, both informal care and formal care. That's UK only. UK only. And it's rising because like, I think over 65 by 2020 is gonna be huge. Yeah, I think we're 16.1% over 65 at the moment, but yeah, it's yeah, it's, it's going up. So it's just an ever increasing problem. Um, and unless you, unless you can satisfy or build a business model to target social care, you're not really going to be making a difference or actually doing anything. So my main focus was to work with social services and private, mm-hmm. charging a, an hourly rate to the clients, paying our carers. We've got a mixture of self-employed and employed carers. There's a big issue here because carers want to be, some carers want to be self-employed because they have families and they want the, you know, the, what's the word? Freedom. 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 Autonomy, yeah. Autonomy, yeah. 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 To choose when they work, which is understandable, right? But then as a carer with a client, you need to stick to a certain rota and be able to actually fulfill those hours because it's all about person-centered care, right? So the client wants, if the client wants to get up at eight o'clock in the morning, not seven, and they're immobile and it's up to the carer to be there, it has to revolve around the client, but then you can't, you know, be expecting a carer to do things that physically is impossible for them as well. So it's a really, it's a really hard mm. um, model to kind of get to grips with. So we decided to do a mixture of employed and self-employed. So the self-employed act as like the bank staff to satisfy when there's like missed visits or, you know, on-demand visits that need to be done. And that can work quite well as well with like hospital discharge. So if they're like on the bank, they could just be like, we can call them up, somebody needs discharging, can you get to the hospital to do that? Um, so the business model works at an hourly rate. We get we pay the carers from that. Um, and then it's all about just um, using our technology to reduce our overheads in-house so that mm-hmm. we can basically put the money to the right place, which is not charge the clients as much money. Yeah. So we charge between 16 and 20 pounds an hour, but the market rate is like 30, can go up to 35 pounds an hour. Well, I imagine you're reducing a huge uh, stress by keeping people out of NHS beds. Mm. Because that was a big reason why they're pushing people out is because the cost of keeping somebody overnight in a bed was really expensive. And of course, then they had these quotas that they had to fulfill. And all that happened was that people got ferried out of beds too soon and then would end up getting readmitted. But as far as the, the stats were concerned, it was working well. And they were yeah. reducing the amount of bed hours yeah, per... Yeah, there was huge controversy about that, wasn't there? Because there yeah. was like literally people being sent out with their hospital gowns on and their can- cannulas still in their hands. Just left in the car park. Literally, God. like being taken out and then, you know, family members being told to come and get them and they'd be sat in the waiting room, literally still in their hospital clothes, going in back into home and then no one there to look after them. Putting the stress on the families to then drop everything to look after these people, their, you know, their loved ones. And then fundamentally they get sick because inexperienced unqualified people are looking after people who have just been discharged from hospital without any information Scary. so wrong and then on, on the public side you do license the councils no so the public side is basically we still do we're just hourly care so we just service clients from social services okay with the technology what we're trying to do with that is license it probably internationally so going to white label it abroad like i was saying in australia or europe um but also there is an opportunity for us to license our technology platform to other care providers um to enable them to operate more efficiently um and then you don't just want to grab the whole market 
I do, obviously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do. All, all 150 billion. Yeah. Of it. Let's just do this. <laughs> um, to the investors out there, that's a great idea. Yeah. But also for me, I think it's about going out to what my mission was, which is actually to solve the care care yeah. crisis, right? Yeah. And if that means that it's going to be many people working together to do that, and I license this technology out to other care providers so they can improve their models and deliver better care, yeah. then so be it, because yeah. I can capture that market quicker. Yeah. Uh, there must be also international nuances. I don't imagine you can just go straight into France and have the model work out the box. I imagine, as you say, you'll bump into cultural differences. Yeah, of course. Yeah, but obviously, where whichever company has care care companies, which every, whichever country that has care companies, which is every country, I think, mm. you they can just utilize it. And however it, the system works with payments and stuff, they can obviously work that out. But this is just a plug into care companies themselves. Um, a question I had um, while researching this was, are you noticing any trends of, of different ailments based on certain regions of the country? Um, do you, like there's, there's specific areas that are desperately in need of care versus some that seemingly are doing a good job? Um, no, it is literally so disparate. Like, and it, There's no real trend in which areas have good care and which ones have bad care, or which ones have great health and which ones have bad health. Obviously, there's a socioeconomic impact. So if you look into areas where there's lower, de- like lower deprivation indexes, mm-hmm. they're going to have higher rates of you know, obesity, chronic diseases, diabetes. Um, so, I mean, yeah, there will be trends in that way. But with regards to carers, probably in those areas as well, there's probably higher population of carers, um, but lower money being spent on being able to have carers to those people. Right. Do you see what I mean? So like, yeah. there's the carers situated probably in lower socioeconomic index areas because the carers are generally from those areas. And then that's the highest disease state. But then there's no money put into the healthcare in those areas. Yeah, I can see. So then they get those carers to go into the higher areas where there's money to spend for those carers. So then those areas end up having probably better healthcare. And then those ones have the poorer healthcare. Christ, it's complicated. Um, and in terms of your personal opinion, from what you learned about how you'd like to continue to improve it other than sort of making the supply and demand more efficient. Are you hopeful for technology coming in and playing its hand beyond sort of mapping people together in terms of um, whether it be, I I don't know, um, better diagnosis of things earlier, stuff like Thriver, which is measuring people and benchmarking against healthcare. Are you optimistic about technology and how it's going to reduce the cost of care further by identifying things quicker? Yeah, hugely. It's all about preventative, right? That's that's the whole idea about putting carers in, though, at the right time, isn't it? Regardless of even prevention with regards to healthcare, getting a carer in at the right time can actually make someone's life so much better. Doing preventative stuff like, you know, gene testing or with Thriver, which is, you know, looking at your bloods and Mm. intervening before something happens, hugely beneficial. But then there's this whole controversial thing about now if you do genetic testing and you find out you've got the BRCA breast cancer gene, Mm. what does that mean for your insurance? What does that mean for your life? Do you have a, you know, double mastectomy done straight away to prevent you getting it? There's a whole thing about that. And there's the other thing, which was a controversy about, you know, at-home testing kits are they going to show up inaccuracies and um, negatives, positive negatives? You know, you know, yeah, false positives and stuff. False positives, yeah. And therefore, is that going to cause more harm to somebody? Um, but I think the negatives are lower and the positives are way higher when it comes to things like you know these kind of things in the community and prevent- preventions. Um, for me, the biggest thing that I love is at-home monitoring, like mm-hmm. IoT devices, you know, diabetes monitoring at home, COPD monitoring, heart failure, biosensors, that stuff is awesome. And that's gonna really augment the way that people's healthcare is delivered and made better and actually reduce resources. That's for everyone rather yeah. than just people. Everyone, 
Well, okay, not, not people that aren't sick. You're <laughs> 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 supposed to monitor your diabetes even though you don't have it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> but no, for everyone. So, like, you can literally do such simple at-home monitoring. Yeah. So, was, like, it's unbelievable. We saw a company there. last week that... Um, I guess you screw in their plug sockets and it monitors energy usage and then it picks up an elderly person's patterns of when they take, because they're quite um, methodical. They like their routine. Yeah. So TV goes on at four for yeah. countdown, kettle goes on at six. <laughs> no, but li- this, <laughs> this was the telephone conversation I had was, was literally as pointed as this. Um, and then if it spots um, irregular patterns, it yeah. starts to let the next of kin know that no electrical appliances have been turned on for the last three hours, which is, it's, you know, it's slightly big brothery, but at the same time, if you're caring for an 85-year-old. Could it do something where, so it notices the electrical surges, and then for the power supply, it can sort of plug into that to to get the cheapest electricity? Ooh. Well, if I tell you who are floating around that company, it was one of the six big energy companies who yeah. have a vested interest in finding out about that. So they're not stupid. And, Neither and are we, apparently. Neither, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the problem I have with uh, at-home devices actually harks back to uh, dear old Nana Jean, uh, 103 years of her. Um, who's Is this my, your Nana? Yeah, she's my grandma. 103? I know, a, men- a mentor. Whoa! Uh, Australia. Oh, it's yeah, all about that she's... sunny weather, isn't it? Macadamia nuts. Macadamia nuts. <laughs> <laughs> <That's laughs> she, she had. In what sense do you mean mental, then? What's that? She's, she's not mental. She's not, oh, no, she's, no she's, really, she's really smart. She's <laughs> still talking about Elon Musk and space, and she's really on it. But she had a device, um, and, and unfortunately, she fell over recently, broke her leg, but she wasn't wearing it. Was it, was it meant to be around her neck? It was meant to be around her yeah. neck, and the stupidest thing about it was she just ended up lying there for an hour. It's like, oh, you sometimes can't help people help themselves. And the problem is, is at the point where they need to wear the device... They're probably not going to have it They're on. sort of becoming absent-minded and stuff mm. like that, so it's... That's why the gate monitoring things like you were talking about. So there's these like by the sensors that are constantly like infrared, right? You don't see it, but they're constantly making um, um, pulses. And over time they can spot anomalies. So you can see that over time it will show that in an hour she was obviously not moved and she was on the floor, yeah. (laughs) And then they intervene and that connects into, you know, the ambulance or the next of kin. So that stuff is amazing. I am an avid disbeliever in those things around the neck or anything they have to wear because especially when you want dementia, you take stuff, I mean, you take your underwear and your clothes off when yeah. you have dementia in the middle of the street. So the chance of you keeping an oyster button around your neck, very slim. Well, even if you don't, even if you're not that bad, you still, you know, you have a reaction. You don't think you need as much care as you do and you think, I don't need this bloody thing. Um, and also, I think it's probably, they've got a lot of pride, right? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, even exactly. in my grandma's yeah, worst exactly. ages, she had so much pride in the way that she looked and she'd always brush her hair. She'd always have her best, like, savakamis on. Like, you know, she always tried to look her best. Um, and I think putting these things around them, especially when people are still active and in the community, you know, going and meeting friends and stuff, you don't want to be wearing something like this. Because you look like an invalid. Yeah. You don't want to feel, you don't want to feel no. that way. Well. Even if you know you are, you just don't want to, you're wearing a badge which yeah. you don't want to wear yeah, because of your exactly. pride as you yeah. say it's a dignity yeah. there was a really um, other cool piece of technology I saw at an event recently uh, which was monitoring people's speech and the the basis of that was it could pick up on some chronic illnesses such as Parkinson's where people start to whisper more mm. and so you could um I think it was in the research phase but they had sound bites and they could listen to people start to get the onset of dementia because they sort of the irregularities in their speech pattern or the quiet. That's amazing. Yeah, and I think once we start to work out how we integrate all of these things, um, that could be quite exciting. There's so much in the space of dementia as well, right? Like, it's the most un unknown about disease, but it's the biggest killer in the UK. Didn't it get, it put that I, through last year, wasn't it? Did you also hear about, there was a, a, a monastery, I can't remember what country it was in, where they basically had a load of nuns who, 
there's a good sense of community and they play games with each other each day. And they had a really good life expectancy. They're frequently living to their 90s and to 100. And actually, they did some uh, autopsies on some of them and found that they had the dementia plaques all over their brain. But because they were um, mentally stimulated quite often, their brain was using the plasticity that it had left to kind of form new brain connections and still be learning things. Wow. So actually, symptomatically, they saw a reduction in the the symptoms of the dementia as it currently stood because they were getting more mental stimulation. That's amazing. Because I think if you cut them off and then... But that's the thing, isn't it? With elderly people, you end up, they, be, they become isolated. Right. And normally a carers are put in just to give them that sense of companionship, to keep them active. And that's why when the carers come in, it's so important that they do things with them, either play music or colouring, which is what my grandma used to like, was colouring books, um, reading, you know, talking, newspapers, whatever it is. But just that interaction means that your brain is constantly firing those neurons. Otherwise, they sit there for nine hours mm -hmm. doing yeah. nothing. Yeah. And obviously, everyone is going to have plaque build up around their neurons. As you age, that's just a, that's a fundamental of what happens, right? Everything degrades, things start to fall apart. And plaque around your neurons is a, one of those symptoms of aging. But you're right, it's, it, you can prevent the symptoms of dementia coming out if you actually do interact and go and see your grandparents as well. That's my bit of advice for today. Yeah. Do you, I mean, do you take any any points away from the the Japanese way of dealing things? I know we we weren't that keen on the idea of robotic healthcare, and I watched a YouTube mm -hmm. video of uh, a Japanese lady getting robotic healthcare, and it was it was surreal. Um, but do you do you look at that in terms of a case study for an aging population and how they're trying to manage it? No, I don't. I I I think man yeah, managing it is great, right? So, like I said, you can augment the this the actual delivery and the service through utilizing things like robots and technology. But I think there's some areas now, like especially in Japan, where they're trying to replace any of the carers and human interaction with the robots. But robots can be doing things like giving medication or getting somebody out of the hoist, right, mm. and to the bed, which is what our carers do at the moment. But they don't need to be doing that. They need to be doing the actual physical or the human interaction side of things, so the talking. So those things can be used to do the things that the carers don't necessarily need to be doing, right? Yeah rather than replacing it. And I think also then you're getting rid of an entire care workforce. Agreed. Remember this like, entire, like, <laughs> there's like an army of, I don't know how many out there, probably many, not enough. And if you're just going to replace them, like, that's a massive unemployment issue. I think right? we came up with a solution to this in the podcast last week. Really? So the guys we had on last week, they are um, developing, like, meat, which isn't meat, plant-based meat. Oh, good. Really good, mm, right? Really um, which means all the cows are going to have to retire because we're, we're not going to be farming them. So the carers can then go and look after the, the re retired livestock. Yeah. Oh. And it'd be great. Isn't that cute? <laughs> yeah, it'd be great. That's a good point, actually. What's going to happen to all those cows? Well, we couldn't. This is it. That's retire. as much as we had. We need someone to develop an app for them. For the cows? To look after them. Match do you want them, to do that? Match them with, car match them with carers. Well, I'll just white level <laughs> your software. <laughs> <laughs> that's great there we go I'm gonna, any investors out there we've taken a drastic redirection <laughs> we need one more thing for the pitch which is a really good pun for the name oh I'm not going to come up with that on the spot Mushi <laughs> <laughs> not that not that I think that's your ne next venture babe yeah you've inspired him you've well, inspired I'm him thinking. Ali inspired you thank you so Ollie's much Ollie's now inspired um, yeah so moving on from that um, so where are you at with Vida right now you're fundraising mm, yeah we're fundraising so we actually did really amazingly so in 18 months 
since launching 18 months ago, in like 12 months, we managed to turn over 2 million in revenue. Wow. In our first financial year of trading, which was epic. And that was literally through delivering care the manual way, because our technology has only just been built and is now integrated into the Brighton and London office. So now what we're going to show is the stark, epic KPIs and traction mm. that our technology is going to enable us to power many more hours than possibly we could before yeah. and reducing our overheads so reducing our spend in the office so cash burn so basically we can you know don't have need as many people in the office to do the jobs that they were doing but they could probably focus on better things right yeah. um and we can then start to um build out the actual other capabilities of the tech platform this year so we want to look at the iot devices coming on top of them outcomes based kind of models so looking at you know dementia patients what outcomes can we monitor and measure to keep that person safe at home and then work with social services and local authorities to come up with better pricing models this is go towards value-based commissioning which is my dream mm. come true i'm such a geek <laughs> um so now we're raising basically three million and of that we've banked 60 percent of it wow and we need to raise the last bit so yeah if anyone lo loves a mission-driven well i imagine everybody's business. had some some uh interaction with care everybody everyone has, everybody has everyone has yeah everyone's got a grandparent right yeah that's the that's the beauty of this and all of our investors that have backed us since the beginning have always loved it because they've understood the concept and the proposal and what we're trying to do so i think that's the best beauty that's the yeah, biggest the, prob beauty the problem way. speaks to everyone yeah yeah so i think we're never going to be shy of even if you know god god forbid even if this doesn't become what i want it to become i've still managed in 12 months we've we've delivered two hundred thousand hours of care right we've done we've serviced 500 clients like we've saved lives um, people have been with us and improved their life justly. We've had families message us being like, "You meant it meant that your care left our, you know, love like grandma, or whatever, actually happy in her last moments. Your care has made such an impact on so and so." That in itself, just you can bow out gracefully on that, right? Because mm -hmm. that's phenomenal. And all things going well, which I'm by the sounds of it, I'm yeah, pretty confident they will. Where do you <laughs> see it in three, five, ten? So. The aim is to be the biggest, bestest care provider empowered by and delivered, like enabled by our own technology in the UK. Um, so basically also reinventing the way that the carers are delivering care, reinventing the way that people perceive care. And for once, I really want to see a headline of like, this carer is amazing, not mm. this carer abused my grandma. Mm -hmm. That's the headline that I want You'll to You'll have to change for. the press system in order to... I know yeah, they love another, the negatives, yeah. but actually it's a nice spin, isn't it? It could be like out of all those years of negative panoramas <laughs> yeah. and like st case studies, finally we could have like one good piece of news. Uh, no one ever kicks on a good thing happens to good people. No, I know. I'm trying to turn a positive from a negative. Everyone tries to do a positive from a negative. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to make the world a bit worse. You know, an interesting thing I heard of someone that's digressed too much was that some people found the care system so bad they permanently go on cruise ships hmm. and because it costs them about fourteen thousand pounds a year to spend their whole time on a cruise ship apparently really? it's brilliant apparently yeah. it's brilliant i've heard that too that's so good yeah and the care on there is really good because it's just a small ship of about two thousand people you've got a community and they're like i'm not spending 40 grand a year for a care home so i'm just going to be at sea the whole yeah. time good okay, meals that weather. is amazing yeah. so maybe, so maybe vida boats vida boats that'd be awesome vida cruise ships to ibiza oh vida vida yeah can you imagine it's so funny it just pulls up just kills the atmosphere as the dj refuses to play a set 
<laughs> that'd be insane. I mean, yeah, there's so much you can do with like um, well, saga holidays. Probably yeah. could do with this. Is the thing, right? So care disability care um, abroad and anywhere. Like, if you want to travel and you've got a disability or you're old and you need a carer, it's next and near impossible. Um, I mean, I've got one client, bless her soul, like she's literally been going to Blackpool every year because there's only one of two hotels that has fully functioning care facilities to look after somebody that is completely immobile and requires, you know, 24-7 care. And her last experience was so god-awful. Like, I think the, the hotel had gone downhill, the carers were awful. They, you know, left her in her, like, pad all night. And things like this happen, but, you know, she, this is not a need. This is, like... Uh, it's not a want it's a need yeah. she actually physically needs this to live her life even just the basics mm. and she said there's only two hotels that are equipped to do that so that's a huge marketplace right and mm. not just a marketplace to make money off but, but allow these people to live life to their fullest which they deserve everyone deserves to be able to book a plane ticket and go where they want and explore the world regardless of whether they've got a disability or not it's just mm. a human uh, well it's, if it's something we can easily solve then absolutely 100% yeah. and even if we can't we should try yeah. Have you seen this thing? I think it's in Holland where they've come up with quite an, an innovative way of addressing this kind of this problem. Maybe not the level of, of care that, that you're talking about, but they get students who obviously mm. don't have lots of money, um, but they need accommodation. And they, they pay for their accommodation in exchange for the students spending time with, like the, the building, the students live in it, the, uh, I guess, retired people live in it. And then in exchange for free board, the students spend time. With the, yeah, yeah seen that. And there's also the opposite side, which is the children's, the nanny's one, the nursery one. You know, Channel 4 did that program mm -hmm. where they put a nursery into a care home. Okay. So it's literally like- Oh God, like, that must be mental. It's like free nannies. Yeah. Or like, you could call it, like I've, I came up with a name yesterday when I was pitching. And I obviously digress because that's not my business, but I was like, <laughs> freenannies.com. They were like, what? Aren't you have a feeder? <laughs> oh, so it's kind of like um, when uh, students doing exams and they get given, it's like a puppy pen. A puppy uh, So they get, they get to stroke puppies to de-stress during exams. You're where does kidding. this happen? Imperial definitely does not they do, do that. They do not do no that. Way. They work like a flocked uh, horse yeah, out there. If you're not <laughs> crying, they're not happy. <laughs> Great memories. Memories. He's rocking backwards and forwards now. <laughs> <laughs> I never went near them. I wasn't allowed. I think the point you're making is you can put two things you together. Weren't allowed near I the wasn't <laughs> you can put two things together that that have a positive effect on you because they um, have it's not rescue pets, but they have animals to help people with trauma, don't they? In mm. some countries, I don't know if that's uh, allowable in the UK, but it has a hugely positive effect. But or, like children, yeah. children with old people is like a no-brainer, right? You parents need to pay for nannies. Mm air quotes again literally pay for nannies right but mm. instead you get a nanny a grandma oh i see now Did you I get it that yeah. was it that was my thing yeah, yeah. Right. then you get a grandma it's free they've obviously done it before because they've been parents slash grandparents yeah and it's a win-win situation yeah this should actually become a thing yeah right yeah obviously not the grandparents that are like you know do have advanced that age dementia because be, yeah. you lose the child hmm. probably yeah. but the ones that are you know more just old mental capacity and just old yeah. and probably quite frail but you know you keep them in a certain area and i'm not talking like you know and they would i mean there would still be you know carers yeah present, there'd be carers so there'd be supervisors yeah. but it's just how good is that it's nice it's rebuilding community yeah. uh, and and actually i would trust somebody um in their later stages of of their existence a bit more than somebody who young is young and maybe more ambitious or wants more the interesting thing i but do think more from life well no no but the interesting thing i do find about the care the care industry um 
is obviously there's a lot of drive for equality of, of all opportunity, you know, all uh, opportunities. Is there naturally a gender based slant to the kind of carers you see? Because I always wonder if I was going to entrust my kid to somebody, let's say the kid example, it's much more likely I'd give it to a 65 year old lady than a 31 year old man such as myself yeah just because of my presuppositions about what the quality i think would be yeah so it's mainly females carers right, right? there are work i think it's like 70 percent women um and they all probably go into it a lot of the ones we've met have gone into it because they've cared for their family members mother-in-law father whatever um they have the predisposition to be more like, empathetic nurturing maternal um which is fundamentally what being a carer is hmm. um but often you'll also find that you so there's a thing where you can't really put a male carer with a female right. person unless that person has that that client who's female has said that it's okay. Mm. Um, so you have to you automatically then are driven to have a higher population of female carers to satisfy because females can go with men. Yeah. Right. So although it, interesting enough, you can probably still get an old male abused by a female care worker. Of course. Yeah. 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 But I think it's just a law that you can't unless there's um, unless the female client has approved it you have to put a, a woman there. Um, so yeah, it's slanted towards that way. Um, so yeah, I mean, we've got some great male carers though. Unbel- I mean, they are some of our best. Like, honestly, these they are phenomenal, but we don't have enough work for them. Because mm. actually we find our actual population that we care for is predominantly females as well, which is strange. Well, they outlive males, don't they? Generally, mm. so imagine there's a couple of years beyond their husband's passing. Yeah. So on, on that, it's a slight um, non sequitur, but um, your point about temperament, which is the reason why you reckon there are more female carers. Um, in tech, diversity. Well, that was a real digression. That was. Well, it made sense. Was an easy, it, easy flow in. It made sense. <laughs> it made sense to me. What's your experience been? Do you think it's an issue? Because there's, there's a lot going on at the moment about there's not enough diversity. Investors tend to be old and male. Mm. Um, not not enough female founders. Mm-mm. You are a female founder. I am. Um, so Just to confirm that. <laughs> you so identify as a female founder. Identify as a female founder. So is Pip, um, Jameson, and there are others. But yeah. do you do you think it's a problem? Do you think it's um, a result of the system or? I think so. Basically, I mean, Pip was telling us when we were in San Fran that I think it's two um, percent of female, two percent of founders get to the stage of investment that Pip's now got to, which is you know the big bucks, big medium bucks two percent of all founders or female founders yeah two percent of all founders are females yeah. that get to that amount of money raised which i think is like between seven million plus mm-hmm. or something um so that in itself is like super shocking and then one in five female founders manage to raise investment so again that narrows you down even more most of the people that work in um tech are predominantly males but there's a huge drive now to get females into tech but i think that that stems from like education so mm-hmm. putting and, it and not temperament no, I don't think so at all. I think it's just traditionally females have been pushed to do certain things. We've always grown up with this like men do this, females, women do this, um, which is sad because obviously it's our predisposition to then go into certain things that people think we should go into, stereotyped. Um, but now is a huge change. I mean, there's, the UK especially is doing so much for it. London mm-hmm. is phenomenal. Like that's why the mayor of London, you know, has this backed by backed by something what's it called behind a behind every great city hashtag yeah which is basically about female founders and women in startups so there's huge amounts behind it but the thing that irritates me the most is that 
on I mean, even my shareholder base, I've got one female out of 30 investors, 30-ish investors. And have you had female investor discussions? I've had two female investor discussions. So probably not enough. Not enough. Right. I mean, I've obviously pitched maybe over 200 to 200 plus investors. And of, of those two, that was, it, yeah, it was two of them. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's a whole thing about are they more risk averse females? You know, do females not get the big bucks to invest as angels because they're predominantly lower on the leadership ladders anyway? So you're automatically creating a backlog. Um, I don't know what the reason is, but it's shocking. Well, I get a, lo- a lot of people who do end up investing in tech companies have done tech companies, and, well, not tech companies, but they've sold businesses in the past. Predominantly they're men, and, right? And traditionally, mm, yeah. the there's a lag. That has been men, so that yeah. maybe it's just taking time to catch up. Yeah, and the <laughs> other thing is that they're all um, predominantly white men. Yeah. That's another yeah. issue, right, as well. Yeah. So then you're, there's, I mean, it's, it's, and also finding a female for your board, really difficult. Like, getting getting to know female leaders out there and yeah. putting those on your board is so important just to have that diversity. But you might be part of a trailblazing generation, I think. Yeah, is maybe course, the point we're yeah. making is maybe that you guys unfortunately are going to be the test case f- to be the investors going back into it because the one thing I do say about um, female related investors it almost assumes that angel investing is rational and the yeah. one thing I'd caution is it's not rational it's not quite rational. risky yeah of course it which is. means that it does need a degree of stupidity not stupidity you're taking an educated guess but you know <laughs> yeah exactly if, if my goal and I've done this for seven and a half years was to sort of pick winners or make money I imagine there's probably more traditional ways that people could do that. And so it's almost like we're, we're asking people to excel at something that almost is counterintuitive, which I think will happen mm. because, you know, you, you'll have success and realize how difficult it is and, and want to back people for that reason. But I wonder if it's one of those things where we're sort of asking for more representation from people who are essentially acting rationally to say, oh, you know, you were thinking about paying for your, your kid to go to a nice school. Well, don't do that. We need more of you to start backing. You know, oh, yeah, that's to- a good... That's a good um- because my sister does Good well point. for herself, but she's never talked about angel investing. She'd rather send her kid to a, a good school. Mm. And that's her priorities. But, you, you know, it'll be different. I think it's just going to take time. But um, there's, def- there's a growing awareness, which suggests... It's really important. The- oh, it's amazing how different it is now, even from like two years ago. Yeah. Or when I start, when I was first at Babylon, you know, back in 2013, which is my first ever experience of a startup. It's changed so drastically. And like now, I, me and Pip and I were talking about this. And like, if people ask us to be on panels, we specifically say, like, if there is not more than two females on that panel and the rest are men, we will turn it That's down. Good. And we'll say to them, sorry, like, you need to get another female on there. I'll put somebody across to them to put on there. And then if they take it, then good. And then I'll be on it. But that's what we need to start doing, pioneering the way and changing the way for other females behind us to come forward in a better, easier way of doing things. Like you're, like the pl- you're like the plough clearing the road for everyone else. Is this else another to... analogy to those cows again? No, not cows. Okay. Snow. The snow. 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 Oh, yeah. I meant a plough for fields. Mr. Plough. No, no, I mean like a snow plough. A snow plough. Yeah, so everyone oh, else can ski behind you absolutely. really smoothly. Yeah, so my journey, obviously, yeah. No, I was going to say... Uh, <laughs> Hell. <laughs> I hope you get thanked. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> one, um, one very quick point. I know you're running short on time, but I, I was San bit. Francisco better than London at no. the start of the station. Worse. Oh, horrendous. Right. That makes me it happy. opened up my eyes to like how amazing London is. Honestly, I landed and I was like, oh, thank God I'm back. Nobody cheers when they land in Gatwick or Heathrow. But I did, trust mm-hmm. me. We all did. Also, the way they invest over there is just so ridiculous. Like yeah. 90 million seed, right, for an idea. Then you've got 18 months to then rev up your revenue, build a company super fast, super messy. But that's exciting. It's exciting. I mean, it's, it's, it's like, it's scary as... F. And then, you know, at the end of those 18 months, you've probably built a company. Yeah, it's 
probably worth something, but what does it actually do? It's just something that somebody's backed you for to build something for some reason. And no one really goes into startups over there with purpose-driven stuff. It's very much, they want to do a startup because it's the thing to do. Interesting. Whereas when you looked at the cohort that came with us on the bus, um, on the bus, <laughs> on the trip, <laughs> we were bus. on a bus all the time. Um, everyone had a purpose behind what they'd wanted to achieve. And you'll find that in London a lot. A lot of entrepreneurs will come and say, I did this because I'm trying to solve this problem that I faced. And it might be a crap idea, but at least they're trying to do something with it. And over there, it's not. It's like, I'm just going to build a SaaS platform and I'm going to get rich and I'm going to be the next unicorn. It's like, yeah. okay, well, what are you actually trying to achieve here, mate? And I was talking to a lot of females out there. Women out there are cutthroat. Mm. I mean, there is, they are just like... So we, all of us were kind of like, oh God, this is... Mm, terribly this sorry to bother you. That's yeah. English people. But so, that's, that's true. I, I honestly think with my experiences, I'm going to Seattle um, with a lot of uh, American entrepreneurs. And as an English person, I felt a little bit like, apologetic for my existence. Oh, versus super apologetic and self-deprecating. Mm. And like when I asked them about adversity, you know, how did they, how did these females leaders that we were talking to on this panel how did they face adversity and it, it was almost like what, never had what's it. adversity yeah. or like you just get on with it dev and i was right. like have you really not had it or have you just are you just being real like put on the front because you need to talk about this stuff in order to allow other females to feel empowered to go through it right whereas they're just like you just gotta be strong otherwise you're out which so they actually the they actually embrace a very um, masculine traditionally masculine yeah, which is wrong stiff up a little yeah screw which that is, um and, and actually, most men nowadays aren't like that. That's just no. an archaic view of masculinity yeah. that that I think... Um, it's rapidly eroding. And we've yeah. got to stay true to ourselves, right, as females. We've got to embrace our own identity as female founders and leaders right. in order to allow other people to come through so it doesn't become an unrealistic option, yeah. which is what I always felt, that I was too soft and bubbly and feminine to be in business and I'm not cutthroat enough and I'm too led by passion and empathy and nice and exactly. that doesn't make that you, you a leader that's what I was always told yeah you've got to be hardcore and you've got to put severe face on and not take any shit and mm. don't, don't, don't fight peace and love yeah let's peace help each other love. out and, love. and actually I think the UK should do that because we should help each other out on a global stage as you're saying we're making a name for ourselves yeah absolutely and and if we continue to, to be supportive and welcoming and not cut each other out every opportunity I think then we stand in good stead on a global stage which mm. is important mm -hmm. yeah um, and, and to wrap up do you have any book recommendations sort of quick fire book suggestions for can it be um, can it oh I was going to say Captain Corelli's Mandolin yeah, yeah so great, book, great, book, great book great book oh you just will, read that you will weep <laughs> you <laughs> you will, will, is the film good will, like, no, Nicolas Cage no, no. Nicolas Cage no the film is awful mm. um, I just love the connotation to a tree rooted into the ground to love and connection and a bit of romance at heart. Um, an entrepreneurial book, um, Lean Startup, was always recommended to me yeah. by Ali Parsa. That was the first ever book I read right. when I joined Gabon. And he actually gave it to everyone in the office. Nice. So he was like, read this book. I still don't really get what MVNU was. No, no, I still no, no, don't no, really get no. it. But I don't get any acronyms, really. I'm Eric Rees like, was good. Um, and then Thinking Fast and Slow. Daniel Kahneman. Yeah, it's a mm -hmm. new one. The, yeah, it's quite newish. It's come out. I'm in the middle of reading that and I got told the other day, stop reading and just do it. <laughs> <laughs> so I was told by one of the boys, just, just read, just, the synopsis is basically, be cutthroat, get shit done, don't faff around on your pitch deck and just act like a salesperson, be a salesperson. I was like, cool, thanks, just ruin that book for yeah, me. Yeah, I've said this before on this podcast that most of those sort of self-help books, oh, I've got the one, opening actually. chapter is actually what you need to read. I got recommended one by the founder of Box when I was in San Fran. Okay. And he told us to actually keep it silent and not tell everyone. Ooh. Tell us. Tell, tell us. I tell you? It's called The Innovator's Dilemma. 
Oh, cool. And then another By one. By whom? Sorry. Okay, I don't know. Okay. But <laughs> Google it. The one I wasn't supposed to tell everyone, which is now going to... If he finds out, I'm going to lose my... Sh- he won't find out. The Seven Powers. Seven Powers. He said it changed his life. Wow. And he says he doesn't tell anyone about it. Why? Um, I don't know. He was like, it's a secret that's going to change the way that you're an entrepreneur. But this is a book and it's that you can you buy. Yeah. But he was All like, right. not many people will know the power of the book. And okay. it makes... As an entrepreneur, it means you become really successful. Um, the Great Game of Business. And that's it. The seventh power is the one that I think everyone is now most intrigued yeah, by. Yeah, so everyone... <laughs> <laughs> Basically, it's going to make you rich fast, apparently, according to him. Okay. I haven't read it yet. <laughs> why, are we, yeah, why are we wasting any time? We should but be reading like it. But it's secret porn that he's <laughs> asked us to go. And uh, yeah, what, on, well, yeah. I guess the one last thing we'd ask, um, we ask all guests, is if there was anything anybody listening to the podcast could do to help you, whether that be a carer who wants to come and work for you and, and find out what that's about or anybody you're looking for, obviously investment... But is there anything anybody can do to help you on your your mission, as it were? Um, To help me on my mission, I think that um, if there's anyone that wants to talk about their story, um, we want to start a blog on the Vida site. I want to. That has real life people talking about Mm. their experiences. Because I obviously back this with my story. And people think it becomes this thing of like, she's the only one that's been through it. I don't think people understand the extent of what people have been through. Like your dad has Parkinson's, you know, other people's family. It's not just elderly care. It's about people's real life experiences. So if anyone out there wants to write their story and share their story, even though it's quite difficult, um, then please send it through and we'll put it onto the feeder website. Just uh, to do how can people reach you? My email? Email. Oh, this Which, is going to go public. Devacatvida.co.uk. Got it. Done. Got it. Shared everywhere. Do you want my mobile number? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> um, if you wanna, if you wanna tell no, us, I'm not no, don't call, don't call her. Bluff. That's mean. Waiting. She's mm, still single. Wait. She needs to get married. <laughs> no. Um, but thank you. Height. <laughs> Five for eight. <laughs> Brown hair. Brown eyes. Great. Thank you really so much fun. for coming. Thank on. you so much. Yeah, really and fun. we're gonna help you, guys you with are your awesome. fun. If you enjoyed this or any of our other conversations, we'd love to get your feedback. Our Twitter handle is at the Startup Mike, M-I-C, or get us an email, olioed, at startupmicrodose.com. If you're feeling particularly generous of spirit, a review on iTunes would go a long way to ensuring that we can continue to bring you these conversations. Finally, this recording could not have happened without the support of Founders Factory back to Entail. Their podcasting software and studio in the Daily Mail building, London, are as ever the unassuming stars of our show. Check out entail.co. And thank you for listening. Goodbye.